Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce the guest for this week is my producer, Sari Soffer. Sari, tell us a little bit about Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago. Okay, so Mayor Lightfoot became the mayor in 2019, her first time running for public office. I mean, it's amazing that she won her very first I race. Know. That her very first race was to run for the mayor of Chicago, <laughs> exactly, which is exactly. one of the hardest things to run for. The chutzpah. <laughs> it's such a hard thing. Yep. And she succeeded my uh, longtime friend, Rahm Emanuel, who you know had a very controversial, very difficult, in the end, very divisive mayoralship. They definitely did not see eye to eye. And it did feel like she, in so many ways, represents the ushering in of a new era when she took office. Yeah, it was historic, not just in Chicago. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot is the first openly lesbian African-American woman to be elected mayor of a major city in the U.S., and only the second woman and third Black mayor in Chicago, which I actually found really surprising given the demographics of the city. Obviously, somewhere around half women, but nearly 30% African-American. Chicago is a tough place to be mayor for all the historic reasons. It's a very segregated place. It has yep. this heartbreakingly and historic high number of murders, usually of black men in the country. And then when she's elected mayor, you know, five months later, she has a historic teacher strike uh, for better paying resources that lasted 11 days and inspired strikes across the country. We have 4,600 kids in the building. We have one nurse. You cannot teach a class of 50 or 40. Then a year later, COVID protests against police violence. And now she is facing heated debates again with the teachers unions on how to bring students safely back into the classroom. I will say that Mayor Lightfoot has been in one of the most bitter battles in any city with the teachers union. And at one point, she threatened to lock teachers out from their virtual classrooms if they refused to go back to in-person learning, which, you know, was a lot. But she said, you know, teachers need to abide by their contracts. So, you know, here we are. And they actually did come to an agreement. Yeah. And the like some of the backlash against her when it comes for the, the teachers union, it seems to be particularly tough because I think there was so much progressive support for her. Mm -hmm. And then you become mayor and you encounter a lot of these tough problems. Yep. So where are we now um, in Chicago? So a deal was reached in mid-February mm -hmm. and they started a tiered reopening. Elementary school students started last week. Middle school students started earlier this week. No decision yet made for high school students, but that is the next step. So we talked to Mayor Lightfoot on February 25th, meaning just pre-K and special ed students had transitioned back at that point. Exactly. And just to add a little bit more background to the debate, she has been very adamant about bringing students back, not just for learning, but for all the other stuff that school provides, like safety and social learning and school lunch for many families who can't afford it. Um, and I looked up some of the stats about the district. And in the 2019-2020 school year, so last year, more than three quarters of students were considered economically disadvantaged. So it really is just like such a tricky debate in Chicago and many major cities around the country yeah. that have a lot of students that really rely on school for a whole host of things. But now I feel like I'm teaching a class. <laughs> <laughs> You've done great work with all of your research. <laughs> Thank you. Aside from that, I really do want to learn a lot about Mayor Lightfoot as a person because she's very interesting. Yeah, because she, she got sucked up into a tornado when she first got elected. 
I definitely want to go back and learn a little bit more about her historic campaign and then even further back to learn what she was like growing up in small town, Ohio, how, you know, the sort of like lessons she learned about leading as a woman and then coming up as a lawyer and government worker when she moved to Chicago. So let's get to it. It's so great to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate your time. No, it's my pleasure. I have to say, I don't know what it's like in Chicago today, but it's the last two days and I'm in Washington right now. It's been in the 50s and 60s and blue skies and Joe Biden is president and the Congress is getting ready to pass a big relief package. It just, you know, everything feels a little lighter and brighter and better and there's some hope on the horizon. No, it it definitely feels like the light at the end of the very dark tunnel is getting a little bigger, a little brighter, a little closer. Exactly, exactly. So, Mayor, tell us, how are things going in Chicago? You know, I do think that people's spirits are certainly getting lifted. We just came through a pretty significant snowstorm here where our city workforce just knocked it out of the park. And I think people are feeling this kind of esprit de corps that they maybe haven't felt in a little bit. For us, it's a bright day. It's in the 30s, not the 50s or 60s. But, you know, I think this is a time of year where you start thinking about spring and summer. So you add on to that the hope that's been brought to our city as a result of the vaccine that I think is Mm -hmm. also giving people a substantial measure of relief. So I feel like things are feeling like we're heading in the right direction and that we're kind of coming out of this very long, dark tunnel that we've been in. But at the same time, there's this um, very strong current of anxiety, of anger, of frustration, So those two things are kind of running simultaneously. I binged the uh, series City So Real to prepare for this interview. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know, it's a documentary about the 2019 Chicago mayoral race. And then they also have one episode that covers your first year, part of your first year anyway, in office. Um, But really, it's, you know, it's not just a political documentary. It's about Chicago. I think it's very well done. But what I noticed, which is fascinating, is that in the beginning, the first couple episodes of that, they're not really focusing on your campaign because they don't believe that you're going to be the one who merges as the winner. And then I think, you know, they start to realize, oh, this woman is getting momentum. And then the later episodes, they focus on your campaign more. But what I did notice throughout is just sort of this dogged uh, sense of determination that was free of anxiety, which I think is unusual for candidates since then, unusual for women candidates in particular, that you were, you know, you're not, you're knocking on doors, you're meeting people, they might have a great reaction to you, they might not, but you just keep plugging along. I watch a lot of politicians, Mayor. <laughs> this mm. is an unusual quality. What do you attribute that to? Well, I, I guess I would say a couple things. One, to state the obvious, I'm a Black woman. And I learned pretty early on in life that the Calvary wasn't coming to save me. And that if I didn't get it for myself, it wasn't going to happen. And really, I have to credit my mother with instilling me that sense of confidence and possibility, but also a sense of expectation and accountability. When, you know, I'd walk out the door as a kid and, and really into my, my 20s, and if I'm honest, probably my 30s, my mother would say, don't forget your Ann Lightfoot's daughter. Now, that mostly meant don't go out there and act a fool because I'm going to hear about it. But it also meant that my parents sacrificed everything for us, to give a life that they had no 
real sense of, but knew was out there mm -hmm. and wanted something better for their children. You know, I, I yeah. grew up in a small town. In Maslin, Ohio, right? I, in Maslin, Ohio, I've done some yes. political campaigns in, Ma in Ohio, so I know it. Oh, yes, yes. It's also a very big football town. Football is everything. That's where I first learned about Friday Night Lights was in Maslin, Ohio. Oh, yes, Texas. yes, exactly. You know, I, I think about the sacrifices that my father made, working two and three jobs. He was like a ghost to me in part of my going up years because he worked so hard. My mother worked uh, midnights at nursing homes and mental hospitals, and she, she worked those shifts, sleep deprived as she always was, so that she would be home during the day when we were in school, and if we ever need anything, she would be able to, to get up and be there. I mean, that's real sacrifice. And I absolutely felt a need to, and really an, an obligation to honor their sacrifice. And my mother built me to be confident and feel like no matter what setting I was in, that I had a right to be there. But I also, you know, I grew up as a blue collar kid and I grew up in environments where often I was the only black person. When my brother that's closest in age to me left our elementary school because he's six years older than me, I was the only black kid for the rest of my time in that elementary school. In the entire school? Yeah. Wow. So from first grade to sixth grade, I was it. And then later, when I went to junior high school, and it was a little more integrated, but not that much, there weren't a lot of Black kids, and there certainly weren't a lot of Black kids that were in the college prep classes. So I had to learn at a very early age to adapt to challenging circumstances and be able to talk to, to anybody. But it's also part of my DNA. I mean, my best friend that I met when I was four years old, and we're still friends to this day, is a redheaded girl who growing up looked like Pippi Longstocking. <laughs> and we both grew up in families that didn't have a lot. She was a, one of six. Her father worked in the, the steel mills. And so we grew up down the block from each other and we remain friends to this day, almost 60. You know, we're gonna on the cusp of 60 years old. And she's still a person. When I go home, I see Darlene. Um, she checks in on my mom. So growing up in that environment in a small town where you have to depend upon each other, where nobody's looking out for us in a tough environment, I just knew that if I persevered, we had a real plan. You know, we weren't going to have the money. You know, I originally thought that I was running against Rahm Emanuel, and I knew he was going to have more money than God. So we focused on the ground game and having a strong field operation and literally going door to door and introducing myself. And yeah, there were times when, you know, nobody opened that door. Yeah. Or they opened the door and looked at me and said, yeah, no, no, thanks, and closed it. But I wasn't discouraged by that. How long did you plan your mayoral race? Because you had to have a long lead time, I think, in order to build up to the point where you actually did run. So how long was that planning in your head? Yes and no. I really kind of started to think about it seriously in the fall of 17, mm -hmm. in, in terms of thinking about running. I spent a lot of time before that thinking about what wasn't working in our city uh -huh. and what voices were not at the table. And this really kind of uh, was an outgrowth of the work that I had been doing around violence. In 16, we had an historic spike of violence in, in Chicago. And so I wanted to do something to, to help with that, but really understand 
what was the root causes of this. Yes. So I spent a lot of time looking at that and talking to people and lots of subject matter experts and going to elected officials, including Rom, mm-hmm. including ultimately Tony Preckwinkle, who I ran against, right. to try to get them engaged in what I thought was the root causes of this was poverty. And I still believe that. Right. And trying to get them to dig down deep. And I will say that there wasn't a lot of receptiveness in my uh, conversations from these folks. And I wasn't thinking then, well, I'm going to be the person who saves the day and I'm going to run for mayor. I certainly wasn't thinking that. But over time, little by little, the path led me to that decision. So really kind of dug down deep in late 2017. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, I had to first convince my wife who thought I was insane and wouldn't talk to me about it at all. <laughs> Let's discuss something else. That took a few months of trying to nibble around the edges and get her to the place. But look, she spent most of her professional career working at the libraries, knows the city, loves the city. And we both got to the place that felt like our city's not where we need to We're not heading in the right direction. And that's kind of what won the day with her and gave me license to say, okay, my little band, let's get together and think about, can we do this? Is it something that you had thought you would do at some point, you know, growing up or as a lawyer in, in Chicago, you're like, oh, you know, I know you were on the head of the police board. You had positions within, you know, within the city that you could launch a political career from, or was this a surprise to you that you ended up doing this? I've always been interested in in politics. And, you know, like a lot of young people who dip their toe into Capitol Hill, I was one of those kids that after college, I spent a couple of years on the Hill and thought, yeah, I'll I'll get involved someday. Mm -hmm. And then over time, I just thought that that wasn't going to be part of my life's journey. And so I really didn't revisit it for myself, but I understood absolutely the power of politics and elected officials and making a difference. So I've supported candidates over the years. I've written checks. I've organized fundraisers, you know, tried to influence policymaking. Right. But I just got to a point in my life where it felt like it was right for me to try. I'd never run before. A lot of people thought, probably still think I'm crazy. You know, a lot of people gave me advice like, run for something else first and then work your way up. Like be an alderman first or something like that, you know. Or a state rep or something like that. But You know, I've never Mm -hmm. been daunted by a challenge. Illinois state senators from Chicago seem to go very far. (laughs) That is that is definitely true. That's definitely true. But this was I knew the power of a mayor and not the power in terms of personal power. Yeah. The ability of a mayor to make a difference in the quality of people's life is so much more immediate than any other elected official. And I know that now even more having been on the job almost two years. Yeah, it's been a tough two years. After the break, we'll get into some of the big issues you faced um, during your first term and how you were thrown right into the fire off the bat. That's after the break on Just Something About Her with Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. We're here with Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. For people who don't know, you were elected in 2019. 2019 world was a very different one and a very different Chicago from where we are now. Since then, we've had COVID, historic protests against police brutality in the Black community, and teachers union protests as recent as this month. 
So you've been through a lot in your first two mm-hmm. years in office. That, that is a supreme understatement, but yes. <laughs> no, look, I mean, look, this isn't, uh, you know, Mayberry RFD, right? This is the big city with all its greatness, but also all of its complexities. We live in a city that has a, a long history, some of it great, some of it not so great. And what's happened, I think, over the course of the last year is those various shades of our history have really come into bold relief. Our history of uh, structural racism, our, our history of segregation, our history of not providing resources and investments, particularly in communities of color, not just an economic investment, but investment in human beings, the healthcare divide, the life expectancy gaps, all of those things have come into bold relief brought on certainly by the pandemic, certainly as a result of the, I think, righteous uprising following the murder of George Floyd. And even though that happened many miles away, it resonated here like it was on our streets. And so as a mayor, I've had to contend with a lot of back-to-back-to-back-to-back crises, all the while, though, trying to keep people focused that they have the tools in their hands to make a difference in their own lives and to try to keep people hopeful. That, to me, is the most important thing that I have the obligation to do, is to keep people believing in themselves, in their families, in their neighborhoods, and in a city government that sees them and we are striving every single day to really reflect the lived experience of a broad cross-section of residents in our city. Not easy, and certainly not easy in the context of a global pandemic, huge uh, civic uprising, the likes of which we've probably never seen in our city just in terms of the scale and the geographic reach. And then also, which we haven't talked about, but is very much present, a massive economic meltdown and dislocation. And what about schools are getting ready? I know you've had a big, you know, in, in, in 2019, you had a difficult strike uh, with teachers unions and then have now just come to an agreement with reopening schools. You know, beyond, obviously, it's such a huge issue for most every family in America, but it also seems to me it's a good example of a very tough issue that affects almost all of society that you as a mayor, you know, on the, on the front lines at a time of all of these pressures colliding at once have had Mm -hmm. to deal with. Can you tell us just sort of process-wise how you walked through that? Because you have to get not just the teachers on board, but, you know, have families feel heard, be concerned about the kids. It just seems like so many people are worried about how we deal with these, everything that's broken in the world. That might be a good example. Look, first, got to begin with listening. It was very clear to me that we needed to get our kids back in school for a number of reasons, not the least of which is for equity. You know, in Chicago, our school population is overwhelmingly low-income, single-parent, where the day-to-day life of our children is challenging. And the one place that is the center of gravity for them, where they get a lot more than just their ABCs and, you know, in math, is our schools. We placed a great emphasis over many years on community schools, but even if they're not officially called community schools... Our kids come to learn, to eat, to be nourished in their mind, in their body, and to be safe. So when you think about the importance that the schoolhouse 
plays in the lives and evolution of our children. And knowing that despite a significant amount of investments, that there's no substitute for in-person learning. And when we started to see uh, the learning loss that was manifesting itself in terms of the number of our young people that were literally failing classes, that significant number of them every single day, and the number is 30,000, just try to wrap your mind around that, Mm -hmm. that weren't plugging in to remote learning despite huge efforts to literally go door to door starting in the summer before school even officially opened, I knew that we needed to build a pathway for our families to have the option to come back to in-person learning. We obviously had to convince them that the schools were safe, right? and they are. We learned a tremendous amount from the other schools, the archdiocese schools and the other private schools that literally opened up and had some form of in-person learning from September. Mm -hmm. We looked, obviously, at the experiences of other school systems, both in the U.S. and abroad. And we invested over $100 million, Mm. thankfully, through the CARES Act, to make our schools updated with ventilation, with HEPA filters, with plastic dividers and screens, masks, hand sanitizers, and spent a lot of time thinking about what the safety protocols would be when you walked in and experienced a school in the middle of a pandemic. So we were very, very thoughtful about the way in which we built the mitigation efforts in every school, in every classroom. And if we couldn't get a classroom up to snuff, it was taken out of commission for the whole school year. So there was a lot of time and thoughtfulness. But having said all of that, we still needed to convince parents Right. That we were hearing them. And I think we learned a lot through this process that that we just went through. The other thing I'll say, which is also important, is negotiating with a union in a pandemic about reopening schools is a very different kind of negotiation than what you would normally experience when you're talking about wages, salary, benefits, and so forth. Because front and center is their fears, their anxieties. And really listening and hearing them and then thinking about ways that we could collaborate with the union to build structures so that teachers felt safe too. Very challenging, very different kind of negotiation than I've ever been in. You know, I was a practicing attorney for decades before I became mayor, and I've been in literally hundreds, if not thousands of negotiations. This was absolutely the toughest and most complicated. But ultimately successful. Yes, I think successful. Look, the the reality is we had open schools for our pre-K and we call them cluster, but it's special ed students in January. And we had three weeks of successfully implementing our plan before the union blew it up. Mm -hmm. And we're back now. We've been back for several weeks. My wife was asking this this morning, how's it going? I said, honey, no news is good news. People have a way of letting the bad news be known to the mayor. Oh, yes, they do. In Chicago, people are not silent. They do not suffer in silence. But in seriousness, we've seen the manifestations of a lot of hard work, both by the union and by us, really bearing fruit. We are starting the conversation about high schools, and I'm excited about that opportunity as well. Mm -hmm. I want to get our high school students back in class, and particularly for our seniors I have very 
fond and strong memories of my high school experience, particularly my senior year. And, you know, for our students, I want them to graduate having those same kind of fond memories and being able to reunite with their classmates and have those connections. Mm -hmm. I'm still very close to, well, truly people that I went to elementary school with, but certainly my high school classmates, uh, we're in regular contact. There's a group of us girls that have just 40 years on after having graduated from high school, we're still very close. I want to make sure that our graduating seniors have the opportunity to reunite in the same way and go off into the world with great memories of their senior year and not just this asterisk of a pandemic. That's very important to me. That's a good time to take a break. We'll be right back to this episode of Just Something About Her with Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. We're here with Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. You know, you brought up your background and you know, growing up in Maslin, Ohio, and uh, I know that you were the student class president for multiple years there. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Yes, every year. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't think that 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 I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that you could continue to run. I guess you're the freshman class president, the sophomore class president, junior class president, senior class president. Is that how it goes? Yeah. So my my high school was three years, sophomore through um, senior, and I was mm-hmm. fortunate. I mean, I grew up in a town that was pretty segregated. Oh, okay. Where the black population was modest. Mm-hmm. And your parents were part of the Great Migration, right? They came up Absolutely. from Absolutely. The... My, my... Where were they from in the South? So my father grew up in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And my mother grew up in Alabama. Okay. And they both separately migrated to my father directly to Maslin and my mother to a rural area outside of my town. Um, they came with their families as teenagers. Mm-hmm. And uh, as luck would have it, they met at an Urban League dance. Oh, that's so great. And... The rest is history. In the closing scenes of uh, City So Real, the last episode, there's a great, which I have to take as the filmmaker's homage to you as a model, where there's three young uh, girls, black teenagers, maybe they're in their early teens, and they have a motto, Gluto, girls like us take over. We have a lack of... Uh, Trademark, Gluto, girls like us take over. And, and I just loved that so much. It was, I mean, they actually asserted that girls already ruled the world, like, but they needed to take already, over. That's just what it is. That's, that would, that's what it will be. <laughs> and I understand the distinction because we kind of like make the world mm-hmm. run, but we're still not in power of everything. We're still not in charge of everything. But these young girls see you um, as their mayor. She took over. <laughs> A girl like us took over. And, you know, how do you think about as a role model to young women in, you know, in Chicago and, and elsewhere? Well, I take that very seriously. First and foremost, I'm a mother of a soon-to-be teenager, and I want her to look at me and think that I'm doing something that makes a difference for girls like her. Now, she's a sassy girl, so... <laughs> Um, you don't as say. She, as she says to me all the time, you're not the mayor of this household. But I do take my role as a role model very seriously. And I recognize, you know, I represent a lot of different constituencies. I'm Black, I'm a female, I'm a lesbian. And so particularly for those parents who are trying to support their LGBTQ plus kids, you know, I, I still um, get chills when a parent pulls me aside at an event and whispers in my ear, I just want to let you know. And it's something around 
their child's experience. I mean, that's just, you live on that, you know, for years to come. But I do take it very seriously. You know, I also, I am who I am. So there are times I'm going to say and do things that are are different than my predecessors. But I, you know, to the point of taking over, I want to reshape the role of mayor in the city of Chicago um, so that it can't be anything other than a mayor of the people, a mayor who sees the entirety of our city, not just the clouded interest downtown, but is, you know, a mayor for the neighborhoods. So I want to leave whatever time I have left in office, whether it's this term or a second, I want there to be nobody who says, particularly our elders, I've never met a mayor. I've never seen a mayor in my neighborhood. You know, when things open back up, I'm going to be right back out there in the streets. And to me, that's one of the greatest gifts that I've received as a mayor is being able to be present in places that are important for a mayor to be seen. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for your time. And, you know, wish you, I mean, good luck with all that is before you all and, you know, getting the city vaccinated and back in order. But I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been an enjoyable conversation, so I appreciate it. Sarah, are you there? Yes, I am. What'd you think? She is really interesting. And what I find inspiring is you, you see sort of new a new model of leadership emerging in real time, but also just how comfortable she is with criticism. Yeah. And how much fortitude she had and seemingly clarity of purpose in running for mayor and kind of getting through a very difficult campaign where she was not, you know, so many candidates, she was not expected to win. And she's just like this very plodding, methodical, not flashy, but quiet confidence that she seems to move through difficulty. I guess that's similar to Whitmer in some ways. Yeah, I was actually just going to bring up Whitmer Mm because it's just something I've been thinking about. It's like, I think we talked about this in that interview, which is that governing during a pandemic, it's the most control you'll ever have, I would assume, as a leader. You're telling people what they can and cannot do on a daily basis in terms of like leaving their home. And you're just clearly not going to make everyone happy. I wonder if there is just some takeaway from some people like Whitmer and Lightfoot where it's just like, all right, I see what it feels like for people to be mad at me for something I know I have to do. I am so certain that this is the right answer. If that just creates a layer of resilience that only this pandemic could have created, only that level of control and that level of power could have created. Yeah, no, you may be right about that. You know, Hillary always says, I try to listen to criticism, but not take it personally. So to listen to see what I can learn from it. So I think you want to do that. But, you know, what it seems with people like Lightfoot and also Whitmer is if I'm listening to science, I can't negotiate with a virus. An angry mob. (laughs) Or an angry mob. Yeah, it's a good thing for people to remember that, you know, you're not going to please everyone and that, you know, coming prepared Mm -hmm. and not worrying about all the criticism is a very important skill to have and a very good quality as a leader. You know what else is interesting is her background in Ohio, where she, Mm -hmm. you know, very clearly, like, established herself as a leader very early on. And student class president for multiple years. And I'm, I was reminded mm-hmm. that Stacey Plaskett was also student class president for multiple years, Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, 
who we talked to uh, when she went to a overwhelmingly white boarding school. Uh, boarding school. And uh, Lori Lightfoot also went to an overwhelmingly white high school. I mean, I see this time and again with some leaders is something happened at an early age that instilled a belief in them, not hubris, but a belief in themselves that allows them to take on big, scary things later on that, you know, everybody told her, you're crazy to run for mayor of Chicago. You should start out smaller. You should run for alderman or have some other path into politics. But she was very clear that if you want to make world change, you have to be the mayor. And I want to make world change. Yeah. And also it is a learned skill to like tune out all the noise. And I think both Congresswoman Plaskett and Mayor Lightfoot had to do that from a young age. You know, like you said, they came from environments that were potentially hostile towards them and they they had to kind of tune out some of that. Yeah. I mean, what's great, and I hope people do this is, you know, you have these women on is that, you know, go back and learn more about them, but they have books, read their books, watch these documentaries. Mm -hmm. We know, I feel like this is our course that we're taking together, Siri. Uh, And what's great is that with each guest, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, it's a lot of work. (laughs) Exactly. To read all these books and watch documentaries and try to figure out more about them. But I feel like we learned so much and yeah, really recommend that people check out the City Set Real documentary. A hundred percent. It's a good journey. Yeah, it is good. I I feel like, yeah, we're lucky. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Mir Lightfoot for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 